Praise the Lord. You guys ready to get into the Word this morning? Okay, okay. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Exodus. Um, uh, I don't know if anybody noticed, it's hot outside, right? It's a little bit hot. Who here is uh, sort of new to the Houston area? Anybody? Anybody new? Okay, so you're all pros at this. Oh, there's somebody. Okay. It can be quite a shock. Someone asked me one time, why don't you guys preach on hell more from the pulpit? I was like, because I'm preaching to Texans, man. I mean, hell's not that scary to, to people who are from around here. Um, I mean, it's, it's real. It's real. But it's, it just doesn't have the same impact as, you know, if you're from another part of the country. Um, and, and I think there are more compelling reasons to follow Jesus. But, um, but anyway, hallelujah. I won't get off on that. Praise the Lord. This summer, we've been on a, a journey. We've been walking through the Ten Commandments, the laws of love. Uh, and uh, we've discovered over the past few weeks that God spent a major bulk of his time up on the mountain there with Moses when he was giving him the Ten Commandments, talking about himself. God was talking about himself, teaching this nation of people who had never known anything other than how to be slaves, teaching them who their God was and how to show honor to God, how to love God. It's as if God was saying, okay, listen, guys, this whole thing, this whole thing's really about me. It's about me. If this relationship is going to work, I want to be the front and center in your life. It's the same thing God tells us today. He wants to be front and center of our lives. Like he goes, I don't want to be a component of your life. I don't want to be one of the gods you have in your life. I want to be the only one. I want to be the core of your life. I don't want you to shrink me down into an idol or try to manage me in some way, you know, to make me more understandable. And he tells us, don't, don't try to attach my name to something that, that I'm not attached to, that's, that I'm not about. And then God even told us, take a day every once in a while to remind ourselves how to be human, to remind ourselves that we are not a machine, that our worth comes not from those bricks that we make, but our value comes from God who made us his children. That's where our value comes from, that we're dependent on him. And then like we looked at uh, last week when we had the kitties all in here with us, that uh, he tells us to honor our parents in whose home he planted us, to honor those, those parents throughout our lives. And that word for honor means different things. But at the center of these, these five commandments that we've looked at so far is God. Uh, loving God, as Jesus put it, with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our mind, loving God. And then we come to the sixth commandment today. Today we're at a pivotal place. It really represents a huge shift in the commandments because these next five commandments are all about how to place great value in other people. And we've talked about God, how to value God, how to show our appreciation and love. But now we're talking about how to value others, honor others, love others. It's kind of as if, I think the order of this is very intentional by God. He doesn't do things by accident. And I believe God is telling us that, you know, once I am front and center in your life, if you get those first five, if you get them rolling, rocking and rolling in your life, you're honoring God. If you get those front and center in your life, you're going to value God's other children, right? That's going to come a lot more naturally. If you put, God says, if you put me first, you're not going to steal from somebody because you're going to be depending on me. You're going to depend on me. If, if, if I'm front and center in your life, you're not going to murder because you'll be depending on me for justice, right? To make things right. If I'm front and center in your life, God says, you're, you're not going to commit adultery because you're going to find your contentment and fulfillment in the person that I've given you. So I'm excited about the message that God has for us this morning because the truth is we live in an age where strife and hatred, and, and, and this basic lack of humanity threatens to tear apart our society. Amen? We, it, it's a very violent age. We live in a violent age and a violent society. Um, everybody's at each other's throats, it seems like. So this is a message. This, this message is, is a, one of those messages that in a better world would, would barely need to be preached, right? We spend a few minutes on it this morning and then uh, meet you for chick uh, chicken fried steak somewhere for lunch right now, you know. Um, but, but it's not as obvious in our society because today we come to Exodus chapter 20, verses 13. Number six, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Now notice God's really short and sweet with this one, didn't he? 
Well, we looked at the one that had to do with the Sabbath day. He spent a lot of words on that. The one honoring your parents spent a lot of words. Idols. He talked a lot about those things. Here he's really short and sweet. In fact, in the Hebrew language, when this was written and spoken, the Hebrew language is two words. And those two words mean no murder. <laughs> Just that clears it all up, right? No murder. Now, first off, one of, the, one of the first questions people have, and it's, and it's still a question, kind of a debate even in the Christian church, um, is what does this entail? What about war? What about killing in self-defense? Um, you know, what, what if somebody tries to steal my truck, right? Can I blow them away? Um, first of all, I would say your truck is not worth somebody's life, so I would probably say Jesus. The same Jesus who told you to turn the other cheek probably doesn't want you to shoot anybody because they're stealing your truck. Um, however, the Bible has two different words, I'll say this, for killing, two different words. The word used here in the Hebrew is this word, the word for murder, it's rotsach. It kind of sounds nice and <clears throat> Klingon-ish, uh, rotsach. Uh, and it's this word for murder, it's taking someone else's life for your own selfish purposes or out of anger or out of revenge. Um, there's a different word used in the Bible for killing, this word mut, is this different word, um, which does seem to be permitted in Scripture, this other word for killing. Now, the King James, if you're reading the King James, it makes this a little confusing, <clears throat> which is not why I'm not a King James-only kind of person. The King James says, thou shalt not kill, if you have a King James this morning. So, uh, so that, most of the newer translations make that distinction uh, by saying, thou shalt not murder. Uh, so this isn't just don't kill, period. It's the unauthorized taking of someone's life. In fact, murder is never used in Scripture. The word, that word is never used, uh, for, uh, for example, as something that God does. He never commits the murder. It's never, <clears throat> excuse me, it's never used for something referring to soldiers in a battle. It's never that, that Hebrew word for murder. So, just to kind of get all that nice and cleared away. Now, today I want to take a moment and, uh, and do something a little morbid. Okay, we're going to do something a little morbid. We are going to get in the head of a murderer. Okay, we're going to get in the head. What happens when somebody murders somebody else? So we're going to play a little spiritual CSI this morning. Okay, or Murder, She Wrote, if, if you're older. <clears throat> Whichever one. So here we go. So let's say there's a murder that just happened right here. Okay, there's a... There's a body, there's a dead guy, someone standing over him who just deadified the dead guy. And what I want to do is, is for a few minutes, I want to trace the steps of what happened right up to that point of that, of that murder. Now, more than likely, more than, we know there was an act because we've got this body here. Now, right, more than likely, right before the actual act of murder, the person who killed them probably thought to themselves, I'm going to kill them. Okay? Uh, I know, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's why I went to school, to figure that out. They thought, I'm going to brilliant. This, I'm going to kill them. And, and this is the decision. So right before the act is the decision. But I bet, right before the decision, right before that, immediately before that, somebody probably, this person probably thought, somebody needs to kill them. Somebody needs to kill them. I will kill them. Why? I'm standing right here. Why don't I do it? You know, like this progression of thought, right, that leads to the murder. So first, there is the wish, and then the decision, and then the act, okay? But I bet, before even that, if you step back before that thought, there was probably this thought. Well, before, before somebody needs to kill them, there was this thought, this person doesn't deserve to be. This person, at some point this person thought, this person no longer deserves to be a living human being. This person is worthless. The world would be better if they weren't here. That's what goes through their head. Because they no longer have any value. They don't deserve to be. Somebody should eliminate them, so I'll kill them, and so wham, they're dead. But I bet if we took a further step back, even before that thought took hold, came some sort of, of raw contempt 
contempt, some sort of pushing that person to the very edge of hatred. This thought of, argh, just thinking of this person makes me go crazy. Contempt. That person is lower than me, right? We're all up here. This person is down here, okay? This sense of this worthless piece of dirt. Contempt. And which leads to, my world would be better without them. This person is worthless. They don't deserve to be. This person needs to be eliminated. How about I do it? Kapow. All together now. But I would bet... (laughs) That something happens prior to that. Something prior to that. Before the utter contempt for the very existence of this person, before that is some sort of anger. And probably a very brewing, boiling anger. This idea that this person has thwarted my will. They have got in my way. They have disrespected me. They've wronged me. They've stepped on me. They've embarrassed me. Whatever it was, something has happened. They betrayed me. And I'm steaming because this person has wronged me. There's an injustice that's occurred, right? And I've got the scorecard and I'm losing. And I'm going to even that score. I would submit that that lingering anger is leads to the contempt because anger and contempt are two different things. Let's talk about this for a second. Anger and contempt are very different. Contempt flows out of anger. Anger is just anger, right? Everybody's gotten angry, right? Except for you perfect people. The rest of us have gotten angry. And it's just that idea, you know, that, ah, that person made me mad. But contempt creeps in when that person gets lowered down a notch, in your scale of life and worth. They're down here now. They get lowered in your eyes. You've heard the term contempt of court, right? That's not just getting upset in the courtroom. Contempt of court is when you show total disregard, disrespect, utter loathing for the proceedings or the judge or the court or whatever's going on. It's actually a crime to be in contempt of the court. Contempt in the heart is what happens when anger goes off the rails, Contempt says my world would be better if they didn't exist. In fact, this person is worthless. Somebody ought to kill them. That somebody ought to be me. Kapow! So, we probably all agree, looking at this, that there's probably some, some sort of a slippery slope, right? Some downward spiral a person goes, goes on between getting angry and getting to the electric chair. There's some kind of downward spiral this person has taken, right? Now, just to continue this this joyous little conversation a little further, uh, what's horribly fascinating about this is that there's a massive number of people um, in America, uh, the, the number of murders that happen each year between people who are in relationship with each other. It's a, it's a horrible statistic, but it's... Now, of course, you have, you have the, um, just the, the psychos, the mass murderers, people who are possessed, whatever it is. They kill people because they're warped or they're insane. Or you have terrorists out there who have this very warped, demonic sense of just, uh, righteousness or something. But statistically, an overwhelming number of murders start with somebody who knows the person they end up killing. We, we see these stories on the news all the time, right? We see, we see this happening. It's amazing. Two people in some sort of relationship and something goes horribly wrong, right? And it just boils and it festers. And it gets worse and it worse. And at some point, she can't take it anymore, right? And she shoots him in his sleep because just the sound of him snoring is going to make her go insane, right? Or, or, or he shows up and shoots her because she's on a date with somebody new. She's moved on. These horrible stories. And what did the neighbors always say when they interviewed them? I can't believe it. They were so nice and quiet. It was like they weren't in their right mind, right? And if you, if you trace it, if you, if you really could understand what's going on in their, their hearts, their minds... Almost every time you would see, you could trace it to some kind of boiling pot hidden inside this relationship that, that was just growing 
every day. How many murders begin with this, just this pot that starts simmering? It's, it's simmering beneath the lid. And something set, sets off this horrible deed. Yes, but the anger, the anger was boiling all along. Now, anger is a fascinating thing. Uh, the other day, I was driving along. Now, if, I don't know if you know, I, the car that I drive used to belong to my grandfather. So it's kind of special to me. Um, it's a 2002 Cadillac. And uh, so it's not exactly like a cool car. It's, you know, it's not like a hot rod. It's not fast or anything like that. But, it, you know, it's special. My sons and I affectionately call it the hoopty. And so, you know, we're going we're gonna to take the hoopty. All right, Dad. You know, so it's not the, their favorite thing to ride in. But anyway, I'm very appreciative for it because it, it's, it's special. Um, but the thing about the hoopty is it doesn't have a whole lot of pickup right away when you need it. And so the other day, I'm driving... And I'm coming on this weird exit in Houston where you come onto this exit, and as soon as you get on the freeway, there's not like this extra lane. You don't have a whole lot of extra lane. It's kind of like you're immediately on the freeway. So I'm coming around the exit, and I'm trying to time it as best as I can to, you know, really get going, pick up some speed so that I can get in the flow of traffic, you know, not cause an accident. It looks okay. I get in there. I'm driving the hoopty. We're on the freeway, and there is a car coming behind me, and I see him. And I could instantly tell that the rate of acceleration, the hoopty's giving it all she got. She is trying, and I've got it down. And I could tell that this gentleman behind me, I call him a gentleman, but it is, his rate of, of speed is greater than my rate of acceleration and is not going to be good. And so he is coming up really, really fast. And I can already see, and I'm, giving, I'm trying my best, but I can see in the rearview mirror that uh, he's, he's already yelling. I could see, I could see it happening. I'm just, you know, you, you know what you, you know, that feeling you're just like, dude, I can't help you. There's nothing I can do about this now. Um, I'm sure this is very frustrating for you and I don't know where you got to go so fast, but I can't help you at this moment. And so he's, I see him yelling and yelling and yelling. And then there's this moment when he's going to pass me, he whips over and he, he's going to pass me. And that's always you know, you're in those situations. That's always the, the uncomfortable part of the, the situation you're in because then you're like, you got to see each other. Heaven forbid you like pull up to a red light together because then you're just like, oh, what's in the floorboard? I don't know. I gotta. <laughs> so he's passing me and this guy, he was yelling. He was yelling at me. He passed me by and he has both hands up in the old double gun salute, if you know what I'm talking about, which is a trick because he's driving. <laughs> both hands up. To, to demonstrate to me his displeasure with my acceleration. And then what's even more amazing, though, is he is looking straight forward like a samurai warrior. Doesn't even, he's not even looking at me, right? So I, he is just like, he is, he's too cool to even look my way, right? Passing me by, eyes forward like a samurai with the double gun salute. Um, has anybody ever had this happen? Someone gives you this. Is it, does it kind of affect you a little bit? Is it, is, it, is it kind of bother you? Do you ever get that feeling like, this shouldn't bother me, but it does? Do we need to have like a big counseling session right here, just group <laughs> therapy? Um, it's strangely violating, and, and you're like, I can't explain why. It feels weird. And you have this sense that it shouldn't matter, but it does. And, and you're thinking, what is in the human heart that somebody pulling out in front of you and slowing down your agenda by seven seconds in your day, what arouses that kind of anger? Um, so maybe a better question would be, what is a person like that already carrying around? What was already being carried around before this tan hoopty pulled out in front of him that set it off? Now, I, I would submit that there's a certain something that happens in the time between the, the decision to, to give me the, the double gun salute and the passing me. Because one is anger. There's anger, which is understandable. You know, why you, Russia, Russia, I'm going to show you and teach you a big lesson you'll never forget um, by yelling a lot. Something between that, though, and then the not looking at me. That's an interesting 
thing again. Because that steps into contempt, right? This idea that you don't even deserve my eye contact. I'm looking up here, right? Contempt. What is it in the human heart that is so dark that we can get set off so quickly? And a lot of us in this room are hearing this story, and we're laughing because we've been that guy, right? We were, have, we were going along our merry day, and something set us off. The person pulled out in front of us, right? And we're like, I'm a good person, but, but they cut me off, right? What, can, what is it in us that can set us off so quickly? Anybody know anyone else who has this, because there's nobody in here I know, but who has this brewing all the time? It's this thing. You know somebody who, who just, it's like they're all, they're, it's, you're just waiting for the other pin to drop. They're always on that edge. The slightest thing happens and they'll go off, right? The slightest thing. Anybody know somebody? They're, they're, they'll go medieval on one little thing. They will be like, are you serious? 11 items in a 10-item lane? Are you even human? <laughs> right? Those people? You see you see them at Kroger? And this person, you can tell they're barely holding it together. They got the vein throbbing in the forehead, Right? Or maybe it's you, you know, the ref makes the wrong call on TV and that next thing you know, that bottle you were holding is smashing against the wall across the room and your friends are like, dude, you've got to chillax, this is beach volleyball, right? (laughs) Maybe, maybe you need help. Um, Anybody have kids in Little League? You see how parents can act at Little League? Oh my goodness, I thought this was just, you know, an exaggeration until I had kids, Right? (laughs) And I'm there, and, you know, parents are just, can just like, Russia, 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 and the kids are just like, what sport are we playing? I don't, you know, they have no idea, <laughs> right? And you just want to go like, hey, psycho dad, get a life. The slightest thing, the slightest thing can set it off. Now, what's interesting is that murder can often begin simply with anger, with disgust, the finger, contempt. Sometimes, and we even have a word for it, right? Road rage. They've invented a word because it's so common. Sounds like a joke, like that doesn't actually happen. It's called road rage. And it happens, and it's tragic, right? The sin of contempt, it always wants to single someone out and say, that is a loser. That is a loser. That is a worthless human being. The world would be better off without them. It's when anger meets pride. That's deadly. You ever been given the silent treatment by somebody? The cold shoulder? It's actually a form of contempt. What is the silent treatment? It sounds like it's no big deal, right? I'm in silent treatment. The cold shoulder is vicious when it's done to you, isn't it? It's vicious. It like physically hurts. It's not just anger. It's, it's pushing contempt to the point where you're, you're declaring. You're declaring it silently. But you're saying, my world would be better if you were not here. So I will act like you don't exist. To me, you are dead. That's contempt. Or I'm going to be so, if I have to interact with you, I'm going to be so cold. I'm going to be so emotionally distant that I'm only going to give you the barest minimum of acknowledgement or information or whatever it is. What is that? It's contempt. And what's interesting is all of us in this room, most of us would probably say, Scott, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a murderer. Yet how many of us go way down this slope and never realize what we're doing? Now, let's look at something else. What's fascinating is 1,500 years after this commandment was given, Jesus comes on the scene, and he speaks about this one. He speaks about this commandment. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that just about most of the, everything that Jesus said that's recorded that he said was some kind of commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. And so if we look at Matthew 5, Matthew 5, people come up to Jesus all the time because they call him rabbi, and a rabbi's job was to give commentary. Uh, and Jesus is commenting on the Exodus here. Uh, the rabbi gives his rabbinical spin, interprets scripture, comments on it, brings things to light. And that. So they're coming up to Jesus saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Now, 
Jesus also happens to be God with us. He's more than just a rabbi, right? So we, his take on the scriptures is especially important to us as Christians. In verse 21, he says this, you've heard it. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, he's talking about the commandments, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So Jesus reminds everybody, everybody knows this rule, we're all supposed not to, to kill each other. Um, and, and right now everybody thinks, okay, cool, if you don't take someone's life, you're off the hook. But then look what he does in verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now the word for angry here, now he's talking in Greek, he's speaking in Greek. He says, uh, if you're taking extra credit notes, uh, the word is orgizio, orgizio, and it, it means to become enraged. And the picture in the Greek is the picture of a, a boiling pot about to blow, right? Pressure cooker, think of that. And he says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, this is the ancient equivalent of fool or beep head, that kind of thing. He says, anyone who says this is answerable to the court. Now, this was a religious law at the time. You could actually, someone called you this, you could bring them up to the religious courts and sue them. This was a super bad word. You weren't allowed to legally call somebody. But Jesus says, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus is saying here, actually, you're not just okay if you avoid murdering people, <laughs> right? Jesus says, I tell you this, if you're angry with someone or hold them in contempt or you think they're worthless, you're already guilty. This is hard truth for us. He says you're already guilty. Now, we, we just said a few minutes ago, we probably would all agree. What we would agree on is that there's like this slippery slope to murder. And what Jesus tells us here is that we're wrong. What he's saying is that there is no slope. There is no slippery slope. What Jesus is saying is actually, you, whether you do it with your hands or you've done it in your heart, you're already guilty. So we'd, we'd love to think of ourselves as if we're off the hook. We see these terrible things that happen on the news or or it might have happened to somebody we love, and we think, that's awful, and I am so much better than that person on the news or that, ha or that did this terrible act. We think we're off the hook. And Jesus says, if you've done it in your heart, you're already guilty. And, and Jesus says, whether you actually kill somebody, whether it's contempt or it's murder, the silent treatment, or you shot them dead, whether you killed them with your hands or just killed them, and they're dead to you in your heart, you're just as guilty. This is the brilliance of Jesus' teaching, is that there is no slope. There is no slope. Because you and I know the truth. If we were going to be really honest, we know the truth, let's be honest. If, in the, if it's in the heart, if it's in the brain, it's as good as real. It's real, right? If you come up and tell me that, that my, my friend... Rick Beal over here, he's a good friend of mine. So if you, if you came up and tell me, hey, uh, Rick hates you. He just hates you. Like, he can't stand you. Like, he can't even stand to be around you. You make him sick. That would, that would hurt me, right? It, it, it wouldn't just hurt my feelings. Like, it would, it would hurt, right? Because he's a good friend. It, it would physically, I'd feel that churning in my stomach. It, it'd be as bad if, as if he came up and hit me in the face. It might even be worse, because then, you know, we could just fight and then hug it out, right? <laughs> if, even if I didn't see it done, if I didn't see any action done, just the knowledge of what someone thinks or what they said, it hurts, right? If you, anybody here, uh, do we have any single ladies in the house? Anybody single ladies? We have some back here, okay, got a few. If, 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 I don't know if you guys are, um, you know, looking for a, a mate or a, a boyfriend or a husband or whatever like that, or if you have one, but let's say I, I came up to you, single lady, and I said, um, there's a guy over here, he's this tall, dark, handsome, Argentinian guy, he's like a professional soccer player, he's got this hair, flows all over the place, I don't, I don't, I don't know him, but he says you are beautiful. 
like, you're the most gorgeous thing he has ever seen in his life. That'd make your pulse quicken a little bit, right? Right? You'd be like, all right, right? It, it, it does something to you. If someone, you hear that someone likes you, you know, you remember high school? If so, someone thinks you're cute, you get that feeling, right? Things start sweating, right? It's real. If it's in the heart, if it's in the mind, it's real. It matters. Jesus says, if it's in the heart, it's in the brain, it's real. This is why gossip is so deadly. This is why cyberbullying and things like that are so vicious, right? We want to think, ah, it's, it's not real, it's just words. It's real. When it happens to you, right, it's vicious. It, it cuts you to the soul. Whether you've acted on it or not, Jesus says it's real. Some sociologists claim that everybody is potentially capable of murder given the right circumstances. And this is the brilliance of Jesus' teaching. If contempt gets in your heart, if it gets in you, if anger, contempt, pushing that person to the edges of uh, who belongs and who doesn't, giving the finger, the cold shoulder, whatever it is, you're already guilty. The difference from there is just a matter of opportunity to act on it or not. And so we can feel kind of proud of ourselves, like, well, I sure hate them, and I'm going to mock them mercilessly behind their back, but I'd never actually act on it. And we can feel proud of ourselves. And Jesus says, if it's in your heart, it's real. And if you're letting anger fester, if you're letting it sit around in your head without actively cleaning house and doing something about it, actively forgiving and letting it go, it's still there and it's real. Last point. In Matthew 5, in Matthew 5, Jesus, after he talks about the murder there, he says, okay, so here's what you do. In verse 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, this is really interesting. When I was reading this this week, it jumped out at me really kind of for the first time. I, didn't, I hadn't noticed this before. Jesus is saying something really huge. He's saying, look, all, if you got hatred in your heart, all the sacrifice, all the praise and worship, you want to come up here and give Sunday morning, you want to speak in tongues, you want to do all kinds of wonderful things, you want to lift your hands here at church, all of it to God is worthless if you have this pot brewing beneath the surface with somebody. There aren't enough Hail Marys and Our Fathers to cover up hatred for somebody. There's nothing that balances out that scale. He says you might as well, what Jesus suggests you do, just drop whatever you're doing and first go make it right with that person. Go forgive them. Let them go in your heart, and then come worship God. Whatever it is that's brewing, it's murder. It's real. Murder or contempt, either one. One, you're destroying that other person, but both of them, you're destroying yourself. Both of them. Now, in all of this that we're talking about today, what is Jesus trying to move us toward? Jesus is trying to move you and I from the world of, ooh, I better not kill him. That's a good thing to move away from. He's trying to move you from there to, I guess I can't even hate them. But he really wants to move you to an even greater place, which is, I must find a way to love them. Not just not killing, not just not hating we have to find a way to love them. I kind of found this video. I wanted it, it meant a lot to me. Watch this on your screens here. I am a Palestinian Christian, and I have lived all of my life in Bethlehem. Today, Bethlehem 
is a city that is completely surrounded by walls and fences. The wall just completely engulfs the city. Living in the wall is like living in a big prison where you are deemed guilty. We grew up in a culture where we were called to hate Israelis for what they were doing to us. Every Israeli to me was a bad person who was occupying us, wanted to destroy us. And I learned that I can stand up for my rights and stand up for my dignity, and I can resist those who are occupying me, but doing it nonviolently, without being violent to them. And I felt that this was the right thing to do. I would even say that this is what Jesus would be doing if he was in my place. Jesus would be standing with the victim against the victimizer, with the oppressed against the oppressor, with the occupied against the occupier. But part of my journey was to begin to really understand that my faith caused me to engage in much more the time that Jesus lived in. Uh, he and his Jewish community were also living under a very suppressive occupation, the Roman occupation. And Jesus could have said anything to the Jewish community at that time. He could have said, uh, we should make peace with our enemies. He, should, he could have said, we should negotiate with our enemies. We should resolve our conflict with our enemies. He could have called his people to do that, and people would have been maybe very upset with him, and they would have maybe even labeled him as a traitor. Jesus went beyond all of this. He called us to love. What Jesus calls us to do is not just to make peace and then step away. He calls us into unity. He calls us into oneness. When you love somebody, when you love a member of your family, when you love your wife, your husband, you create a new oneness with them, a unity with them, where there is no other actually. The challenge to all of us is how are we living this globally as well? And I believe that the teachings of Jesus have the answers that the world is looking for. We are just called out to live them. We are not called to just make peace. We are called to create a beloved community of all the peoples of this land. And that, for me, is what loving the enemy is all about. Loving your enemy. It's maybe one of the most unpopular things that Jesus ever taught us. It's one of the hardest things. When we were in Israel, it was a beautiful time when we got to we got to pass through those gates and go into Bethlehem and see the Church of the Nativity. Uh, it's the traditional site where where Jesus was was born, and. Uh, and it's this beautiful thing, but at the same time, it, it is, it's, it's tragic that you see all of this, you can feel the animosity, it's in the air, the, the contempt on both sides of that wall for each other, the utter hatred. And it, and it wasn't lost on me when we were even in that church, and we would see the Christians who were there in that church, that when we're done here, I'll get to go back to Jerusalem and across over that wall, and they, I don't know. It would be a lot harder for them to get across. Some of them would not be allowed to cross just because of the political situation and, and there are realities that's going on. But the fact that over there you have this idea of hatred and it's, it's written into the very laws, this idea of contempt. The other person is less than we are. And mistrust is just everywhere, right? And the only thing that can change that is Jesus Christ. There's not enough UN resolutions or politics or politicians who can have however many Camp David Accords or whatever. Nothing will change that situation till the day of Jesus Christ, right? And nothing can change our hearts except for Jesus Christ. See, Jesus takes this to the next level. This is what gets me. I'm not because this isn't easy. It, it's not enough for us not to <clears throat> kill each other. He says, when you follow in his footsteps, it doesn't just free you from hate and contempt and the desire to murder. When you follow Jesus, it actually frees you to love. And that is the beautiful gospel. The gospel 
frees you to love the unlovable, the hard to love. But if you and I lose this profound sense of, if we lose this awe and wonder that every single human being, everyone we come across, is sacred, no matter how flawed they are, no matter how messed up they are, no matter if they agree with us or not, they are a precious, sacred creation of God. And my job is to love this person somehow. If I lose that, if I lose that awareness, then there's nothing holding me back from full-on contempt. There's nothing holding me back. And, and, and we all know it's at epic proportions today, isn't it? Right? Like I said, we turn on the news and we see all these things. And, and not only that, not only the things that make the news, but just the things that happen in our schools every day. The internet age has, has mean, means that contempt has never been easier to unleash on each other. Right? If you just go to a message board or something like that that has to do with politics or something, the amount, or not even that, just college football, the amount of the inhumane contempt people can express for each other is heartbreaking. Our ability to just flame each other and tweet things that we would never actually say with our own mouth, but we'll type them with our fingers. And then you mix that with politics and you have the ingredients for a level of inhuman behavior that, no, that has no part in a Christian's life. And I hope it has no part in your life. And if, and if it does, just repent before the Lord and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. Every human being, and I don't care today if you're uh, Team Donald or Team Hillary, every human being is, is a precious sacred creation of God, right? And as much as we might be tempted every once in a while to dehumanize people with verbal contempt or something like that, or written contempt, our job is to love them. Our job is to love them, not just coexist. The pagans are capable of coexisting. That's no big thing. We've all seen the bumper sticker, coexist. That's a beautiful step, but Jesus calls us to something way more than that. He calls us to love. I mean, coexist. That's the bare minimum. He calls us to love, right? Now, now look, that doesn't mean being buddies with everybody, okay? It doesn't mean we've got to be everybody's best friend. There may be people in our lives that are so hurtful and destructed that we have to stay away from them. And you might know someone like that. Maybe you have to create boundaries to guard your heart, to protect yourself from them and their destructive tendencies. But what this is, is it's saying that my, that even if those people are, are mean and untrustworthy, even if I have to limit my contact with them, no matter how screwed up this person is, they are still a precious, sacred creation of God. And I have to find a way to allow the love of God to flow through me. Because see, if we lose that ability to, to love the unlovable, then we become less human. That's what happens to us. We become inhuman. But when you die to yourself, you surrender it to Christ, you become fully human for the first time. The kind of human being that when God created, he said, oh, this is good. That's what we become when we surrender ourselves. Now, you might be sitting here wondering, is this a really hard truth to live up to? Yes. Yes, it is. In fact, I would even say this, it's impossible. Okay? We'll just get that on the table. It's impossible if you're trying to do it all by yourself. If you're trying to do this alone, you can't. Uh, just spoiler alert, you can't do it. If you're just simply trying to will yourself into being a nice, moral human being who loves everybody, you can't do it. It requires putting your faith in Jesus. See, that's, that's kind of the, the real point in all of this. We have to have our faith in Jesus. It's only by accepting God's love and his grace that we can show that kind of impossible, supernatural love to every other person on this planet. That's only through putting our faith in Christ. 
listen, you don't experience that. You can't experience it by coming to church, by just coming here. You don't experience it just by hanging out with Christians. You can't experience that kind of love for yourself. Now listen, if you're here today, and, and you're still investigating who this Jesus is, you haven't like personally asked him into your heart, but you're investigating who he is, that is awesome. And I am so glad you're here, right? And we welcome you on that journey. We invite you to walk with us. This is a place where you can belong and be loved exactly as you are. We're not waiting to love you till you accept Jesus. You can belong here. You can be loved. But just know this. Until you make that decision for yourself, you'll always feel like you're on the outside looking in. Even when you're walking with us, even when you're coming to the things and you're joining us, there's always going to be something that feels like, I feel like I'm on the outside looking in. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of supposed to feel that way. That's the Holy Spirit tugging at you, right? Until that moment, you finally decide to give it up for Jesus, to surrender your life to him, to not just come to church, but to become part of the body of Jesus Christ. See, that's a very different thing than just coming to church. That's becoming the church, becoming part of the body of Christ, allowing him to live in you, to come in you and live in you. That's when you become a new creation. See, that's when old things are passed away. If you've got anger in your heart, you're like, man, I have tried to get over this. It is hard. I just can't seem to get over this. If, if that's you, Jesus is the answer, but it's not just coming to church. When you put your faith in him, the old is passed away. That's when all things are new. That is when all those things that were done to you and all the hurts that were done to you are finally put to death. That is when they're put to death because Jesus paid for it. He bore it all on the cross. He even bore your anger. He bore your need for justice. He bore that on the cross. He bore the worst thing that was ever done to you and the worst thing that you ever did. He knows both of those things. He bore it on the cross. He loves you. He's paid for it. So I want to be upfront with you. I want to be super honest with you today. I don't ever want you to think that I'm, I'm trying to hide my intentions or, or you know, pull a double switch on you. I want you to know, if you're here today and you haven't made that decision for Christ yet, just to be really upfront with you, my goal, my ultimate goal is to help lead you into a personal, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And I won't rest until we get there. I love you right now, but that's my goal. That's our goal here. Generations is a place that you can come and you can walk that out, you know? And, and Jesus is, is beautiful. He's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on you. He kind of lets you take your time, walk at your own pace. But it, and this is a place you can come walk with us while you're seeing for yourself what the Christian life is all about. We're not going to judge you or ask anything from you while you're still checking it out and, and coming to church and getting to know Christians. But just don't make the mistake of thinking that is all there is. Because that's not all there is. You haven't even really even begun to know how good it can be until you know Jesus, until you ask him to forgive you of all the past sins in your life, to make him Lord of your life. That's how you, under, that's how you can really live this out. It's not just a, an interesting self-help speech that I've given, but you can actually live out what it's like to not have hatred in your life, to walk around in just flowing rivers of forgiveness, to be free of everything everyone's ever done to you to be free from them you can actually understand what that's like to love people supernaturally but you can't love people supernaturally until you let him love you completely you have to surrender to him that's the only way anybody here can can hope to love supernaturally god he pours his love into imperfect broken flawed human beings that's what's happened here and, and he turns us into these beautiful vessels that pour out his love to other people. I'm going to pray right now. And if you're here today and you've been checking Jesus out, you've been looking, you've been coming, you sort of, you've been swimming in the water, but you haven't drank in it yet. I want to encourage you, 
do it today because that's when you that's when real real life begins I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to ask everybody here to to bow their head. And if you would, can we all just repeat after me? And I encourage you today, if, if you've never prayed this prayer before, God is listening. He loves you. And he's ready. He's waiting with open arms to change your life like you can't even hardly believe. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I surrender my life today. Forgive me of my past. Forgive me of all my attempts to do things on my own. I receive Jesus in my heart. I believe he went to the cross and rose from the dead to pay for my sins. Thank you for being in my life today, Lord. Help me to grow in relationship with you each and every day of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, see, that's all there is to it. You don't have to go through a a really weird ceremony. All you have to do is talk to Jesus. He just wants a relationship with you. Words matter. Jesus says, if you'll declare me before men, I will declare you before God. When you have Jesus on your side, there is nothing, there is nothing that can be against you. And all, the, and all the, the, the bad things in the world that can come against you don't even matter anymore when Jesus is on your side. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward. And listen, if you're here today, for the rest of you, for the rest of us, if you're a believer... This message was for you, okay? Because I can't expect someone who, who hasn't experienced that new life in Jesus to be able to fulfill any of this, right? This message is for you. You need to ask Jesus every single day, help me, Lord. Help me to forgive. Help me to just flow in love. Help me to love the unlovable. Help me to be like Jesus to everybody I come across, even those people who drive by me really angry. Just help me to love them. Say a prayer for those people, right? That's a lot more satisfying than returning the action. Say a prayer. Love them. Be Jesus to people. Amen? Amen.